Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I'm Slim Shady. Yes, I'm the real Shady. All you other Slim Shadies are just imitating. I'm still Kev. <laughs> I'm resolutely not, still not going to join in. All right, I, 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 I ain't letting go of it. Sorry. No, I, I mean, I, at some point I may decide to, to join in with your, with your whimsy, just not at this point. <laughs> well, hello, everyone. This is part two of our clash between... Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. And the album that we will go through this week, NWA's debut album, Straight Outta Compton. Just a reminder of what connects these two albums, mainly hugely influential hip-hop albums, both of which uh, advocate strongly for black civil rights, uh, both released in 1988. Both acts suffered from uh, media blackouts in terms of radio and and, and uh, television uh, airtime. And in terms of samples, there are numerous songs that are sampled on both of these albums. And as we uh, talked through last week, there are songs on one of these albums which are also sampled on the other album. But... Before we start going through Straight Outta Compton, I believe it is your turn to choose a video for us to go through on our feature video, Killed the Radio Star. So, indeed, over to you. So, my choice this week is the video for Voodoo In My Blood, uh, the song by Massive Attack featuring Young Fathers. It stars Rosamund Pike, um, who was fresh from starring in the Hollywood film Gone Girl. And essentially, she is possessed by an orb that's that's all you can really say about what occurs there so i my apologies for interrupting you i'd never seen this video before you shared it i I, can i read you my notes (laughs) yeah go ahead all right so to start off with ah it's rosamund pike she's going into an underpass a bad thing's going to happen she looks scared then she's confronted by a floating disco ball it looks like the medical droid from star wars (laughs) She, she seems to find it amusing for some reason. And then I've written, ow, why has it just stabbed her in the eye? <laughs> now, Hal seems to be in control of her body because there's a red light like Hal from 2001. Yeah. And uh, Christ, she can move. There's some awesome dance moves. Uh, you get that for two minutes or so, and then it just fucks off. <laughs> Those are my notes. <laughs> So apparently it's based on a horror film that the director saw when he was 12. I just thought it was really interesting. Apparently Rosamund Pike trained with someone from the Royal Ballet for two weeks beforehand to do all the choreography and and everything like that. And it's just a really interesting video. And I really like the song as well. So it's it's a good combination. So I really like Rosamund Pike. I think she's a tremendous actor. And, you know, coming off the back of a box office smash like Gone Girl, and you get asked to do a music video. You know, fair play to it. But very easy to take it lightly. But Christ, she puts in a hell of a performance in in what is a five-minute video. So it's really interesting you say about training with the Royal Ballet, because, you know, I've said it's really balletic, the mm-hmm. way she moves. It's phenomenal. I, I just, it's a great tune. I'm very familiar with the tune, but I'd never seen the video before. 
brilliant. Loved it. Good choice. Yeah, after um after our previous video, uh, it's it's very different from the from the bay um <laughs> from the bay uh, music video anyway. I never said that I liked the video. <laughs> no. I just said I wanted to talk about it. Okay, we said when we introduced this feature, it will also be about things that annoy us. Yeah, it's it's just we've gone from we've gone from Bay to that. <laughs> Brilliant video, really good choice. Thank you. Okay, so I suppose it's for me to sort of lead us into Straight Outta Compton. Then the album NWA Straight Outta Compton. It was released in August '88, recorded at Audio Achievements in Torrance, California, and was NWA's first debut album now they had been recorded before on an album that were a, a compilation album which was nwa and the posse which they only had they were only credited with three songs on nwa themselves consist of dr dre who most people i will i assume will be familiar with if not uh, for his music then certainly for his headphones Aren't they now Apple's headphones? Didn't he sell them for like a billion dollars to Apple? He made a few quid off off his um, <laughs> headphones. Well, they I think they're still referred to as as Beats, Beats by, by Dr. Dre. I think yeah. they are. Ice Cube, um, who you may be aware of his musical work, you may be aware of him um, in films. Are we there yet? Wasn't that one of his films? I was going to say Barbershop. That was going to be the... Um, yeah, fair enough. Friday <laughs> would be the obvious one. Well, yeah, uh, he's in Boys in the Hood. He, like, he's, <laughs> he's been in loads of films. Like, yeah, I like the way we started with the shit ones. Yeah, <laughs> we're back went, to the good oh, ones. Oh, yeah, actually, he's been in some really good ones. <laughs> Additionally, um, Arabian Prince, DJ Yeller, and MC Ren. Also, additionally, assisting with the album, a label mate, the DOC. Uh, him, Ice Cube and MC Ren wrote the lyrics for the songs. Dre, uh, Yella and the Arabian Prince were on production duties. Um, the band themselves were formed essentially by Eazy-E, who helped set up the record label they were on. Ice Cube came in from a another rap group, which were known as CIA. Uh, Dr. Dre had previously been in, involved as part of the a... What would you describe them as the world-class wrecking crew? Uh, well, they would describe themselves as a 80s electro beat group. I would describe them as a Morris Day in the Time light. <laughs> okay, fair, fair enough. Certainly, if you look at the way they dress, it's very much, you know, they they had watched Purple Rain. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they, they, all, they all sort of came together. Their first recorded contributions as a collective were on NWA and the Posse, Eight Ball and Dope Man, um, which are on this album, were on that on that previous album. So you mentioned about the formation of Ruthless Records in the group. So Ruthless Records was formed by Easy E. There's an interesting story as to how Dre became involved. So it's people may well have watched Straight Outta Compton, the biopic about NWA, which takes some dramatic license, let's say, but there's a lot of elements of reality in there, let's say. So Dre became involved. So he, he'd been introduced to Easy E through a mutual acquaintance. He'd got into trouble with the law through failure to pay parking fines and, and traffic citations. So not perhaps quite as gangster as um, <laughs> as he would have you believe, or certainly was depicted in Dre Outta Compton, the film. Uh, basically, uh, and this is depicted in the film, he called easy and asked to bail him out 
uh, to which Easy did on the condition that Dre agreed to produce records for the as yet non-existent Ruthless record label. Basically, Easy then set up Ruthless using money he'd made from dealing drugs. So, so Easy E was the one member of NWA who actually had been a gangster. He was a member of the Crips. And yeah, he'd been a drug dealer. He wanted to go straight, use the money he'd made dealing drugs to set up Ruthless. Yeah, sorry, Kev, back to you. So before we get into, into the album and the artwork and every, everything like that, we always ask the question, how did you first come, come across this album? So how did you come, first come across it? Okay, so I said last week when we went through Nation of Millions that my introduction to hip-hop was listening to white fellas do it, and that's no different here. So as many people of my age and creed, 1999, Eminem comes along, and yeah, there you go. I'll have some of that. Through listening to Eminem, I started listening to stuff that Dre had done and just worked back basically to NWA and Straight Outta Compton. So I will I will be honest and say that whilst I had heard several songs off this album, I had never actually listened to the whole album as a collection. That I had I had mates who were into rap and hip hop and had mentioned this and I'd, I'd heard most of the the more well known songs. But yeah, I'd ne- I'd never before this clash I'd never actually sat down and listened to the whole thing. All right. Okay. There you go. Good stuff. So um, I'd like to take this uh, chance to talk about the artwork. And I think this is, we uh, trailed um, a bit of Tipper chat <laughs> last week. I think this is where the Tipper because in terms of the look of the album, the advisory label fucking works yeah. brilliantly on there. It does. It, it's perfect. So the photograph itself is, is taken essentially as the, from the perspective as though you're a dead body, the, the members of NWA are looking down on you um, as you look up at, at the sky. They're, they're surrounding you and Easy e is holding is holding a gun at you. Uh, the photo was taken by Eric Poppleton, and he said essentially they were they were just going around taking photos across across LA. They went down this one alley, and he got on the ground and decided to take a photo from that perspective. The group sort of crowded around him and. Easy pulled out a gun, and the iconic photo was was taken at that at that at that point. And in terms of being provocative, just on the cover of the album, it is it is designed to get a reaction. It is, and as you said, that image is perfectly set off by the. It's one of the first albums to feature the now famous parental advisory label. Won't someone please think of the children? Exactly. So Tipper Gore, she had long campaigned for increased censorship in music, and there were numerous high-profile court cases in the US, including against the likes of the almost the complete anathema to NWA, Judas Priest. <laughs> And that led ultimately to what I say is now the, the well-known and and quite often parodied parental advisory label. Uh, and Straight Outta Compton was one of the first albums to, to feature that. And uh, as Kev said, it just sets it off perfectly considering what the image is. Yeah. You know what you're in for. Yeah, I mean, with with that image and the, the parental advisory, it screams the outlaws, the rebels, they're dangerous. In terms of if you're... 
a white middle class youth in in America, and you want to piss off mum and dad, <laughs> this is the album to buy because ev- everything everything on that cover is what white America is terrified of. Exactly. So do you mind? Will you indulge me? I know you're leading us through, but before we start going through the album, there's a couple of things, a couple of quotes I want to read. So th- this is seen as, if not the birth of gangster rap, certainly the thing that propelled it to the next level and into the mainstream. Well, I, I mean, this may be where, where you're going with it, but uh, Ice Cube himself objects to the term gangster rap. Yeah, that that was a media construct, and they considered it reality rap. That this is they were speaking the truth about what what it was like on the streets. Exactly. So that is very much what I was going to say. I was also going to say they weren't the first to do this. So artists like Ice-T had started to get a lot of traction and a lot of popularity. who had been rapping in that style. But I think this album took it to the next level with the use of profanity and with the graphic depictions of violence and, as will, unfortunately, to talk about at some length, misogyny. One of the inspirations for the use of profanity, again, a quote from Ice Cube, was Richard Pryor. Ice Cube was a massive fan of Richard Pryor, but obviously Richard Pryor used a lot of profanity in his shows. So he's basically quoted as saying, we know the value of language, especially profanity. We weren't that sophisticated, but we knew the power it had. And boy, was he right. Obviously, having the influence of Richard Pryor, who, if you've watched any of his live sets, that they are brutally, brutally honest. And whilst I may have some issues with some of the elements of of this album, again, it pulls no punches in its evocation of street life, which is very much within what Richard Pryor was doing in a comedic sense in, in his live sets. Absolutely. So just before I start, there's one other thing that I just wanted to, to add, and it is a, an additional link between our two clashes. Apparently, early copies of A Nation a nation of Millions to Hold Us Back was sent by Chuck D over to Dr. Dre and Ice Cube, and according to some to some sources, it had an influence on, on the development of this album. And obviously there are samples used in it and some of the some of the elements, particularly the fir- the first few songs as well, that you can see there is a public enemy influence in it, that there is a movement going on at, at, at this time. So I didn't know that. That's really interesting. And you're right. You can hear the influence of public enemy. Uh, okay, great. Okay, so... We open the album with the title track, uh, Straight Out of Compton. And wow, it's a statement opening this. Um, the sound of it, it's unrelenting. It's an absolute statement. It's a manifesto declaration. This is this is who we are. This is what we're about. And get the fuck out the way because we're coming. It is. I, I think manifesto is a fantastic way to say it because that's exactly what it is. Wow. So, just a fact, it was what was the first single from the album. It was released in July 1988. It uh, wasn't particularly successful. Predominantly, as we mentioned last week, radio stations refused to play the song and NTV refused to play the video to this song. And now, if you look at the video to it now, it's not especially controversial, but MTV didn't want to play it. So uh, they've said themselves it was a, it was a blow. It was a setback because nationally they couldn't get the traction they wanted. And we're not, we're not going to skip immediately onto the next song, but 
the reason that the the video for this song got banned off MTV is because of the second song on the album. Which was the B-side to this single, actually. Uh, you mentioned when you were going through the background about them talking about what was on the streets. So Dr. Dre, quote from him saying, it was just us reporting what was going on on the streets. The good, the bad, the teachings of the elders. That's basically what our thing was. And that's what we meant by street knowledge, referring to the very opening uh, lyric of the album. You are about to witness the strength of street knowledge spoken by Dre himself. Boom, what an opening. Yeah, it's phenomenal. It it is it is I mean like it's still strong strong today as the first time I heard it. Can I do the sample thing? Yeah, sure. Samples within it. Uh, it samples you'll like it too by Funkadelic. It samples as several hip hop tunes do. It samples Amen Brother by the Winstons tune. Mm-hmm. Now, things that samples this song. Uh, so there's one that's a callback to a previous clash of ours. It was apparently sampled by Oasis on, do you know what I what? mean? I mean, what part of the seven and a half <laughs> minutes was that in? <laughs> it's been sampled by Public Enemy. It's been sampled by uh, Fatboy Slim in Michael Jackson. Another great tune. <laughs> and this is the one I wanted to call out. It was also sampled by Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that you you brought that one to the table. I fucking love Straight Outta Compton, and I'm going to be really cheesy here. Just as Dre says at the end of this track, "Damn, that shit was dope." Yeah, it's it, it's a brilliant. It is a brilliant song. Okay, should we go on? Yep. So from there, we go into the incredibly well known and controversial "Fuck the Police." Essentially, the song itself, it's a parody of a court hearing prosecuting a police department where Dre acts as judge. Ice Cube, Eazy-E and MC Ren are acting as prosecutors. There's two interludes that reenact in an incident of racial profiling and police brutality. Now, there is some dispute amongst the, the members of NWA over its history. Dr. Dre said it was after he and Eazy-E were out shooting paintballs at people waiting for a bus. The police uh, turned up, had them face down with guns pointing at them and arrested them. Ice Cube uh, says it was a reaction to the, at the time, the LAPD chief of police, Daryl Gates, who launched a war on gangs at the time. If you happen to be black and they considered that you look like a gang member, then you were getting picked up no matter what. The, as I say, the, there is debate between between the two as to the actual veracity of where the song came from. So there's another part to this story which potentially links those two and, and suggests that both are true. So Ice Cube wrote the track. He wrote the lyrics. It's been suggested that Dre was reluctant to record it because he was still dealing with the sentencing from the traffic violations and stuff that we referred to earlier. And he didn't want to potentially make things work for himself. But then the incident that you described with him and he with the paintball gun, that happened and that convinced Dre that, no, we need to do this. I can see how both of those suggestions may actually be true and it might actually not be a disagreement. It's just all part of the story about how the song came to be put on record. And I mean, in terms of the wider context of this song, it's it's only four years after that you have the the Rodney King riots in LA 
which occurred after white officers who beat an unarmed suspect in custody and were filmed doing so were acquitted by a jury. And as has certainly in the in the past year and a half that we've had, it seems like whenever you kind of look at any new story related to policing in America, that it's usually excessive force by a, often a white officer on a black suspect. As we said last week, we're recording this in the week in which Derek Chauvin's been convicted of the murder of George Floyd. So before we get into our opinions musically of the song, we have to say, as we said last week, unfortunately, this song is as relevant today as it was in 1988. That's not to say we advocate all of the messages within, but there is a clear message within about the treatment of black youths in particular by law enforcement, which as we've said, still is something that needs to be spoken about today. You know, we as as we've said, we're, we're two white fellas, so we are the the sheer fury and anger within this song. Whilst we appreciate where it comes from, we can't begin to understand it because we've not had that lived experience. We, I think we we've done our best to kind of talk about the the context behind it, but we we have to we have to be honest and admit that. Whilst we appreciate it, we will never truly understand because we, because we can't, and that goes on in this country as well as America. Sadly, it does. Yeah. So we should probably talk about the FBI. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the FBI. <laughs> so the FBI did not take this song well. No. <laughs> so much so that a assistant director wrote to. NWA's record company expressing their disapproval. The <laughs> police, um, when NWA were touring, refused to work security. Hmm. And obviously, as we mentioned before, MTV banned the Straight Out of Compton video because of the sheer furore over, over this song. And listening to it now, maybe at the time, like when this came out, we, uh, what, seven? Um, so yeah. we have the we have the benefits of time passing, but you listen to it now and it's oh I'd, come on I don't know it's lyrics from Ice Cube. There's going to be a bloodbath of cops dying in LA. Okay, maybe that. <laughs> right, I, I fucking love this tune. I think Ice Cube is a tremendous lyricist and a brilliant MC. I think exactly as we spoke about with Chuck D last week, his fury, his anger, his deep sense of personal investment in the subject matter really comes through. And I think his verse is by far the best on yeah. this track. Yeah. But A, we are blessed with the, the white privilege that you talked about. But B, we've got 30 plus years of hindsight of, yeah, you listen to this compared to some of the stuff that, that Eminem was rapping about on his, well, on any of his albums, certainly his first two or three and it does seem somewhat tame. But in the late 80s, you've got a record with cutting, which is also saying about a group of youths suggesting they're going to get out the guns and mow down the police. You can well understand where the controversy came from. I'm not saying that it wasn't disproportionate, because I think it absolutely was. But I think if we're to sit here and say it sounds a bit tame nowadays, I think that's doing it a disservice, to be honest. No, no, like, and don't misunderstand me that I think, as I say, that the, the benefit of hindsight is that 
in comparison now, 30 years later, it it doesn't sound as transgressive as as it probably did at the time. I think the the structure of the song as well, to use the courtroom setting to prosecute police brutality and that is, is really clever. I, I do really like that format. I think, as you say, the Ice Cube's Righteous Fury is is the best verse yes um mc ren as well is really not i'm i'm not criticizing easy e's uh performance it's just of the of the three his would not be the the top one for me so that's really interesting so one thing we didn't because we could have spent hours going through the history of ruthless records and things that came before but easy e was far less experienced as an mc let's just say that compared to to ice cube and and ren in particular and I think you can tell on this track more than any other on the album that that is the case. That's not a criticism. His verse doesn't seem as natural, doesn't seem as flowing as the verses by Cube and Wren. That's all I'd say. So it's really interesting that you've made that observation too. Yeah, it's 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 really it's really well done. There's ten samples in it, including Funky President. It's My Thing by Marva Whitney, which is produced by James Brown and Funky Drummer by James Brown. James Brown is very important within this song. Can I just talk about a couple of things before we move on? I know we've talked about this song for a long time. Yeah, okay. Right, so firstly, there's a famous story. So they were banned from playing this track on their US tour to promote the album. On the last night of that tour in Detroit, they decided, fuck it, we're going to play it. Fair enough. And at that show, when they were playing the song, the stage was stormed by a plainclothes police officer and the gig was drawn to an abrupt end. So in the film, it's depicted they were rested on stage and there was a big brouhaha, which I'm sure is the hip-hop terminology. (laughs) In reality, the law enforcement were waiting for them back at their hotel and they were all released without without charge. But I think it certainly speaks to the profile that was attached to the group when they were touring the album and with this song in particular, that it was seen as so insidious, if you like. The other thing I want to call out, a perhaps unlikely defender of the lyrics of the song came from Johnny Cash. So in an interview with Vibe magazine, he was basically asked about the harmful impact of rap lyrics. Johnny Cash referred back to the Folsom Prison album and specifically to Folsom Prison Blues. And he said, you know, I don't recall ever hearing about anyone listening to that song and then going to Reno and shooting somebody. Fair play, Johnny. Spot on, Johnny. Is right. Yeah, is right. If ever there was a a way to perfectly say, listen, I'm a white fella singing country music. When I sing about that stuff, no one gives a shit. These lads are singing about it and everyone's up in arms. Fuck off. Yeah. And as for it to come from the white country icon, Mm -hmm. that is Johnny Cash, like incredibly powerful. Absolutely. Okay, so then we move on to the third song, uh, Gangster Gangster. Essentially, it's an evocation of the dangers of living in Compton and South Central, but also speaking of the... The only way I can describe it is the appealing side of gangster life. I don't think the appealing side is a bad way to say it. I'm not advocating that way of life. The term appealing is that it's appealing to people living that experience who've got so many 
obstacles to their way of life, that they see people running around with guns, living what is perceived to be a life of freedom. And so when you say the appealing side, it's not advocating it. It's saying you can, it's understandable why it's appealing to people in that situation. That's how I interpret that. Okay. Okay. And that's, that's fair enough. I mean, it is, it is incredibly misogynistic, this song. It is. I'm going to speak about um, Dr. Dre's history of violence against women. I'm sure we'll talk about about this later. In after this album, there is a dispute between Ice Cube and the band. He leaves. It's related to royalties, and then there is a dispute that carries on uh, musically between the two. Ice Cube goes on to a MTV program, uh, which is hosted by D Barnes. Ice Cube says all kinds of things against NWA members. So uh, the program was called uh, Pump It Up. After this, uh, Dre sees Dee Barnes and he viciously assaults her. And at the time, he was completely unrepentant. So I have a quote from him. People talk all this shit, but you know, somebody fucks with me, I'm going to fuck with them. Beside, it ain't no big thing. I just threw her threw her into a door. Oh, sorry, I, I just threw her through a door. And uh, Michelle accused him of domestic abuse. Lisa Johnson, who was mother of his daughters, uh, stated that he beat her many times, including while she was pregnant. And she was granted a restraining order against him. Indeed. And on the release of the Straight Outta Compton film, Dre expressed some contrition for his previous behaviour. He said uh, to the Rolling Stone, I made some fucking horrible mistakes in my life. I was young, fucking stupid. Would I say all the allegations aren't true? Some of them are. Those are some of the some of the things that I would like to take back. So there's more to that quote. He says, but I paid for those mistakes. Did you really? And there's no way in hell that I ever make another mistake like that again. Oh, fair enough. Okay, as you said, at least he's shown some contrition, but... Um... You can't call it an apology. No, you can't. And certainly the context of some of the levels of misogyny on this album, it's not great. It's not great at all. Can I just, just before we, we finish on this, is that simply the, the fact that there was contrition doesn't excuse the actions that, that took place. Absolutely right. Well said. So in terms of Gangster Gangster as a song, I have to say I do really like it. I agree it's very misogynistic. I think, and perhaps this is something I need to reflect on about me as a person. I am perhaps more accepting of the misogynistic element of this genre of music than you are. And so whilst I accept that it pervades many of the tracks on this album, it doesn't bother me as much as it clearly bothers you. And maybe that's a reflection on me. Um, Well, I I suppose that maybe it's a reflection on the, you know this album far better than I do. So some of the, some of the tracks um, were entirely new to me because I hadn't, heard, I hadn't, as I said, I hadn't heard the album before. Maybe if I'd heard these when I was when I was younger, I may have been. I hope I wouldn't have been, but maybe I might have been more forgiving of some of the misogyny in it. So I asked my wife about it, and again, my wife is from the same background as we are. But I asked her specifically about the misogynistic element of not this album in particular, but gangster rap as a as a subgenre in general. And to quote her directly, she said, it's disgusting and it's shameful, but that doesn't mean it's not good music. 
Okay. And she said, whilst I like listening to the music, would I like to be introduced to any of those men in public? Not at all. That's what my wife said. People may strongly disagree with those views. That's absolutely fine. Uh, but I, I felt it important to ask her opinion on this because she, she does also share a fondness for, for, for this album and, and many that followed it. So, yeah. All I want to say on Gangster Gangster in terms of samples, it includes a sample of God Made Me Funky by the Headhunters, which is a fucking tune. And also the absolutely imperious Impeach the President. Never has a call for a parliamentary procedure been so funky. Indeed. Okay, shall we move on? With- yes, let's move on. So the next song on the album is If It Ain't Rough. So one of the one of the samples that I noted down that was in this was uh, a star in the ghetto by the average white band. Yep. Like that sort of drives the um drives the song really. It's a great funky sample. MC Ren's rapping has a, a great rhythm and patter to it. Brilliant. You've just you've just brought me into exactly what so this is where I've written. I mentioned last week well you said patter rhythm about Chuck D's rapping, and I said we'd come back to it. This is it. So Ren, although he had a reasonably successful career after the group split, certainly not as successful as as Dre and and Cube in particular, he's a really good MC. I really, really... So this is his solo rap. And I think, as you said, his patter, it's brilliant on this. I really, really like it. Yeah, he's he's really good on it. And I I really like it, the, the, the balance of the... Of the the sampling, his rapping, it it works. It it, it works really well. I, I I do really like this. I like it a lot. There is only one other thing I want to say. Uh, one of the samples of this track is "Don't Believe the Hype." There you go. So a, another link. Okay, so then we move on to the next song on the album. Parental discretion is advised. This one has, so the first verse is wrapped by uh, the DOC. He's the only guest, the only non-NWA member who uh, performs on the album. It's a really surprising change of pace in it terms is. of sound. Yeah, uh, The sampling, again, is great. The juxtaposition of the different styles makes it seem as though there are so many different songs going on. And the way it ends with that sort of jazz break. Yeah. Piano sample. It's, I mean, that absolutely blew me away. Like this is this is great. So there's a there's a quote I want to read from Dr. Dre about sampling. Back when we started with the NWA thing, if we were going to sample something, we would try to get musicians in and replay it. I'm not sure if that would get you off a plagiarism suit. I mean, just ask Pharrell and Robin Thicke. <laughs> <laughs> he goes on to say. If it was something we couldn't replay, we would use a sample. I'll try to stay away from sampling as much as possible throughout my career from day one. Really? Because you listen to this track. No, no, you haven't. (laughs) Um, There's a reference to kid and play in the lyrics and the the high top fade hairstyle in particular. I mean, like I've not had to think about kid and play for a very long time. (laughs) I'm sure they had a cartoon series that was on British TV in the 80s. I have no recollection of a cartoon series involving kid and play. (laughs) Well, look, like I, I would have no knowledge of kid and play if it wasn't for that for that cartoon series that may have been on before Top Banana. I mean, this, this is very, this is very niche chat. <laughs> Top Banana was fucking brilliant television. It was Can we great. just say that? 
Oh, we're not even going into Sandy Toxvig being in the house at number 73 or something. It's number 74, wasn't it? Was it 74? Exactly. Like... With uh, Neil Buchanan from Art Attack. What, Banksy? <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely, he's definitely not Banksy because if he was Banksy, then all his murals would be made of like jumpers and stuff like that because that's what he'd always was. That head would have, would have uh, gotten him <laughs> by now. Wouldn't it be great if that head was what ended up being permanently put on the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square? <laughs> or the green or the green snot monster that was in uh was on the 915 from Manchester. The 815 from Manchester. 815. Oh, Do you mean Gilbert? Gilbert the snot monster. His name yeah. was fucking it was an alien, not a snot monster. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I mean, we like most of our chat, it tends to be fairly niche, but we have gone down a very niche. Um, Kev, we can do a lot more niche than this. Come on, that's a t- anyway. <laughs> Should we come back to the matter at hand? Parental discretion is advised. I quite like it. It's all right. Let's move on. <laughs> I quite, I, I really like it. Um, okay. Uh, we then move on to the easy E led um, eight ball. So, I, I will admit, when I first listened to it, I naturally assumed that the eight ball it was referring to was the the term for a uh, for a ball of of cocaine of crack cocaine. Nope. Um, apparently not. It's dedicated to the forty ounce bottles of malt liquor, mm-hmm. old English eight hundred, and basically getting fucked up on it. I mean, it, I've never consumed. Old English 800, but it looks like a classic. It basically looks like the American version of White Lightning. I mean, yeah, like we have we have cider. They have giant bottles of malt liquor. <laughs> I don't really like this song. Right, a couple of things I want to say. So this is a remix of a track that was originally on the NWA and the Posse compilation that you referred to earlier. So I have this album on vinyl, and this is one of three tracks that does not appear on the vinyl version. Right. And personally, I can see why. This track is what it is. It's an early track that they liked, and they wanted to give it a wider distribution. Everything about it, from the beat to the lyrics, it sounds like a demo. Musically, it's very thin. There's elements of misogyny. Yeah, it just nothing about it grabbed me or made me in, that I enjoyed it. Like it's yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I, there's also a reference to when Easy raps about a Mexican wrecking his shit. Does it have to be Mexican? Why does it have to be Mexican? Yeah. What I would say about this song is that it is one where you can really see that the album was made on a shoestring. And I, whilst I don't like the track particularly, I don't mean that as a criticism. It was a bunch of guys renting studio time, making stuff on their own, talking about what they know, stick it on a record. Fair enough. I don't like it very much, but fair enough. It's the um, the rap equivalent of Dixie's Dinner. <laughs> oh, fucking hell, that's harsh. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we move on? Yeah, okay. So we move on to uh, something like that, which I really like. The samples and the beat are much funkier. Dr. Dre leads it. There's only three samples in this song. So Take the Money and Run by the Steve uh, Miller Band. I think, I think I'd think i do it by uh, ZZ Hill, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And Down on the Avenue by uh, Fat Larry's Band. Yep. I really like it. 
after struggling through eight ball, I'm having a much better time now. Interesting. I'm not too keen on this. So I think Dre and Ren work really well together, to be fair. It's another one that's not on the vinyl. It's a filler to me. I don't hate it. I don't like it. It's not surprising that they didn't put it on the vinyl. That's what I'll say. The only other thing I'd say, it's interesting. I think it's the only track on the album that directly name checks Arabian Prince. I'm sure we'll talk about this when we talk about the legacy of the album. Arabian Prince left the group uh, before the album was released due to disagreements over over royalty payments, basically. I.e., he wasn't getting any. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think Dre and Ren sound good together. I think some of the uh, the rhymes are good, but this is filler to me. Fair enough. Uh, whilst I like this song, um, it doesn't hold so much of a place in my heart for me to go to bat for it. So we will we will move on to Express Yourself, which is a Dre-led song. It takes its main sample from the, the song Express Yourself, which is a fucking great, great tune. Charles Wright, what a fucking tune that is. And it, it gives it a funk already because it, that's a great song and has a has a great rhythm to it. And I really, I do really like this song. The, the song itself is about the concept of free expression and censorship placed on rappers by radio. And um, there is no swearing in this. However, within the song, Dr. Dre criticizes other rappers who don't swear to get radio play ironically um it's not the only ironic lyric in this track mate <laughs> well i'm about to get onto that and you know it, it's not the first time that this kind of um this kind of thing has been referenced within hip-hop and that so i, I was naturally thinking of uh, i forget i forget which eminem song calls out uh will smith for uh, not doing any swears. I mean, anyone would th- anyone would think that I've actually put some thought into my introductions to these shows. I, it's the real Slim Shady. Uh, right, okay, it is it is that one. Okay, Will Smith don't got a cuss on his rap to sell records. Well, I do. So fuck him and fuck you too. Well, that, that, that seems unnecessarily aggressive. To... It's a quote from a lyric of a song. I'm sorry. <laughs> so there is a there is a uh, line in the song. I don't smoke weed or cess as it's known to give a brother brain damage. Something which is very much not referenced by Dr. Dre in the chronic or any of his uh, subsequent work. Yeah, we should say this is written by Ice Cube, who also smoked loads of weed. And in fact says so in another song. He does. Maybe Dre didn't smoke weed at this time. What we do know about Dre at this time is he had not yet met Snoop. (laughs) (laughs) By the time he released The Chronic, he had met Snoop. All all we will say is that The the Chronic has reference to smoking weed and he met um, Snoop Dogg. Any inference that you take of a connection between the two is made by yourself and not by uh, this podcast. I mean, you listen to 2001, there is not a single reference on that album to takeaway food ordered through the app Just Eat, whereas I'm sure if you listen to a Dre album nowadays. <laughs> oh, dear me, Snoop. What have you done to yourself? <laughs> I mean, the, the, the thing is about the, the Just Eat rap, it's quite good. Uh I like this a lot. This was, as I mentioned earlier, this is the first NWA song I heard and just, you know, partially, well, I, it would be incorrect of me to say it's partially because I love the Charles Wright song because I was introduced to the Charles Wright song because I heard this first. It's 
fucking great. I love this. This actually reached number 26 in the UK singles chart in September 1989. So for so for me, um, it's the other way around. So I knew the Charles Wright song before this, you know, but it is really good. Dre's rapping's really, really good. It's got a, a lovely rhythm to his rapping. And like, so one of my favorite lines that I wrote down was this one. So you ain't swift moving like a tortoise full of rigor mortis. <laughs> that's, that's fucking great. That's such a good line. What I would say, given this was Dre's first solo rap, and I know he didn't write it, fair enough, but it's really proficient in his MC skills. Really good. I like it a lot. I mean, of this album, it's the poppiest and most accessible on there. So it's not, maybe it's not a surprise that we we both are saying, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, fair play. And that seems to be a deliberate production choice as well. That um, yeah. as much as they were railing against their lack of airplay, they realised that if we get one track out there, which radio is happy to play and the MTV is happy to stick the video on for, then it might just make us a load of money. And well, you know, who knows? The album may even have gone on to sell 3 million copies. Spoiler alert. <laughs> All right. Should we go on? Okay. So then we move on to the next song on the album, which is Compton's in the house. It's a very stripped back, essentially just wrapping over a, a very simplified beat with some scratching. What do you think? Well, so this was a, originally the B-side to an Easy E single, Easy Does It, which again appeared on the NWA and the Posse compilation. I think MC Ren's patter comes across really well in it. I, I don't like it very much. I think it sounds what it is. As, as I said as I said earlier on, it sounds like a demo track that they wanted to give a wider distribution to. I didn't want to presage um, my, my views before before hearing yours. I found it musically quite boring and like in some of the lyrics, so wacky whack record, like again, doesn't really grab me. As you, I, th- I think, I think your description of it as a, as a demo that really needed working on is, is right. It, it's not great at all. So we then move on to, I ain't the one. I mean, there's no, there's no question that this is a incredibly misogynistic song. Agreed. And basically, according to Ice Cube, all women are out for money. I don't agree with that. Okay. Well, uh, we will we will hear your counterpoint. So this is a song. I this is a song railing against women who are out for money. But I don't think he suggests anywhere in the lyrics that all women are out for money. So yes, it is very misogynistic, and I'm I'm certainly not condoning those views. I'm. Merely saying that one can read too much into certain lyrics. And on this occasion, I don't actually agree he's saying that all women are materialistic. In itself, it is misogynistic, but I think we should be careful not to exaggerate things. That's all I want to say. I mean, I, I don't agree with you. I think that throughout it, it is hateful towards women. So much so that whilst noting down my thoughts on the song, I made the note, who hurt you, Ice Cube? <laughs> That's fair. It's clearly about someone. Yeah. Like, who hurt you? Do you need a hug? Would a nice cup of tea and a, and a custard cream sort this out? You're not even going to give him a bourbon. Come on, mate. That's fair. But... Well, all right. Okay. He can have a bourbon. I'll even go. I'll jammy dodger. Do you know what? Biscuit of your choice, lad. Let's talk it out. Let's hug it out. Let's sort out your problem because someone has hurt you bad. Uh, so uh, spin off number two, Biscuit Clash is 
definitely something the public's crying out for. I mean, I'm definitely banging into that. Because I'm interested to to hear your views that you you consider a jammy dodger to be better than a custard cream or a bourbon cream. And well, no, I'm not saying the better. I'm saying I would offer him the option. I mean, <laughs> if if someone had hurt me as much as um, as it clearly hurt Ice Cube, I'd be asking for a chocolate hobnob. But you know, that's just me. Uh, some of the lyrics in this make me laugh. One in particular, I'm going to read. And after the day, I'm going to want to do the wild thing. You want lobster? No, nah, I'm thinking Burger King. It's funny. And maybe I need to reflect on what that says about me. And I'm all joking aside, maybe I do need to reflect on how I look upon this album with a sense of nostalgia and how I perhaps need to take a more critical eye on it. But I like this. It makes me laugh. Sorry, it does. So it's it's really funny that you you mentioned that that line because that's one of the lines that I noted down in terms of you just think that people are trying to get in your pocket. Uh, we we have it. We have a different perspective on this. For me, the only thing I felt that was going for it was the sample, which is the the message by the brass construction, which is fucking great. It is. What what I will what I will say is that this is this is an album that I as I've as I've admitted from the start that You've come cold to yeah to. so I so this is this is me with my life experience coming to it I may be reading more into it than is actually there that's that's my perception of it and I would say to the listeners that listen to it yourself and take your take your own call from it that's my call Tim has ha- has his. Um, and he has more he has more history with the album. Come to your own conclusion. Yeah, exactly. Just just because I've heard it more doesn't mean I'm right. No. So we move on to our next song, which is uh, "Dope Man." This is an evocation of of street life. Uh, so the first verse is essentially describing a dealer. Second verse, quite misogynistic about women. Um, third verse about being an addict. Again, maybe I'm being coloured by what's gone before. This is it's a story about crack dealers in the, the hood and the impact that has on the community. So it's it's a direct link back to Night of the Living Baseheads that we went through last week. Uh, and in fact, this also refers to Baseheads in the lyrics. Okay, yes, there are misogynistic lyrics in there, but the way in which they are, the context in which they are used is relevant to the subject of the song. Again, I'm not condoning it. I'm just referring back to what you said the group were talking about when they recorded the album, is they were talking about the reality that they lived. In, in terms of my feelings of it, I'll, I'll say, actually, the same as I said for Night of the Living Baseheads, a song that contains such vehement rejection of crack cocaine and what it does deserves something that is far more furious than what the backing track to this gives you, which is just, again, it's just a beat. It's a really disappointing track, this, and it should be so much more than it is. I certainly agree with you that it's a, it's it's telling a story. It doesn't tell the story very well. It could be so much better. And it yes, I think I think my problem with it is that it doesn't hit its target. I agree with that. It doesn't. It kind of idolizes the the dope man. Oh, I don't agree with that. Uh, are you saying there that? the way that the chorus is dope man, dope man. And that's what they're all singing. Is, is that what you're referring to? No, 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 no. It, it's, it's more the, the dope man has the money. The dope man has the women. It, it seems, it seems less critical of the, 
certainly in comparison to Knight of the Base, is about the impact on the community and more that, well, he gets what he wants. I read that differently. Yes, he gets what he wants, but I read it differently because I don't think that in any way glorifies that he gets what he wants. I think this paints the dope man out to be a bastard. So I I don't interpret the lyrics in the same way as you. Okay. I do have another a fairly significant problem right at the end. So this is where the song fails to hit the target, where the impact is far less than it should be. So right at the end, the lyric, yo, Mr. Dope Man, you think you're slick? You sold crack to my sister and now she's sick. But if she happens to die because of your drug, I'm putting in your culo a 38 slug, which is a really, well, it's not a thinly veiled threat. It's a direct threat to say, Mm -hmm. I fucking hate you for what you're doing to my community. However, my big problem here... It's undercut. It's undercut because it's delivered in a comedy Mexican accent, which again, so for the second time on the album, the apparent racial prejudice against the Mexican community completely undermines many of the messages this album advocates. Whether that's intentional on their part or not, it does for me. Well, certainly I'm I'm aware only from reading and from television slash American films that there is a long-standing tension between the black community and the Latino community. Yeah, exactly. But even without that, that should be a really powerful way to end the song, a really powerful way to end the song, which would emphasize my interpretation of it at least. And again, maybe I'm suffering from confirmation bias a little bit. It's completely undercut by the comedic way in which it's delivered. The third verse... That should be, for want of a better phrase, and harking back to early hip-hop history, like the white lines element of it, the the message element of it, you, you know, that part of it. And it, it doesn't hit home hard. The third verse where it's supposed to be about the impact of it, it's, it's too weak. I agree with everything you've just said. And I, I don't even think you need to go as far back as, well, the first two tracks on this album. Why isn't this song delivered with the same fury as Straight Outta Compton and Fuck the Police? Because if it was, then I think this would be a really great advocation of trying to get those communities clean. And it's not. It fails. And possibly because of where Easy made his money. Yeah, maybe you're right. I, I think at that we should move on. Okay, so then we move on to Quiet on the Set. You know, it's it's got eight, 18 separate samples in the song, which include uh, Rock Creek Park by the Blackbirds and I Get Lifted by Casey and the Sunshine Band. And Rebel Without a Pause. Indeed. MC Ren uh, leads on it. It's a bit nothing for me. So, uh, yes, I agree. The only other thing I've said, Ren is a really good MC. And I think, again, on this, when he's given the chance to, to flow in his own style, it comes across really well. And I think it's a shame he didn't have a greater career after the group split. I would agree with that. This song could be more than it is. The second half of this album is disappointing. You come in with three or four absolute bangers or certainly songs with with a hell of a lot of merit to them. And there there is a hell of a drop-off in quality. I mean, and I would say in terms of the, the albums that we've done thus far, it's probably the steepest drop-off in quality. Uh if you listen to Be Here Now in Reverse, then. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean, actually. And it's a shame. Yeah. An unremarkable track. 
Okay, uh, so then we finished the album with Something to Dance To, um, which has uh, a Sly and the Family Stone uh, sample absolutely running through the... Just a bit. <laughs> yeah, it's like the Blackpool rock of the um, of the song. It is it is written throughout it. So what's, like, can we talk about rock for a second? Like, what's the best flavour of rock? The one with strawberry? No, it's just the fruity one. It's the one that with all the rainbow colours on it. That's the best rock. No, no, quite clearly the best rock is the one uh, that has a, a red kind of pink outside, yellow middle with a strawberry ribbon, no. like sort no. of drawn on it. No, that's it's, the best one. It's the Helter it Skelter, Tutti Fruity. No, fuck off. Sorry, fuck it, you're fuck wrong. Off. Right, oh, God, we're going to launch rock class. <laughs> yes, we are. Honestly, Stakhanov are not going to know what's hit them. <laughs> Absolutely coming for you, Acast. Wait till we get that Squarespace money. <laughs> so, in terms of this song, to me, it sounds so, so dated. It sounds very much of its time. So the one thing we said is this is the only track that Arabian Prince takes the lead on. This is the third track, which is not present on the vinyl. And again, I can see why. What album is this from? Because it ain't from this album. It, what What is this from? It's just, it does not fit at all. It's, it's not 1988. It's 1986. It's, what is this? It's down the roll of disco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, the, yeah. Yeah, it, uh... Neither of us are particularly keen on this song, I think, is, is suffice to say. All I'd say is, if I was reviewing this track on an album that was released five years earlier, I would probably be speaking more fondly of it than I am now. There's nothing I can point to that I actively dislike in it. It's just completely jarring on this album, and I do not understand why it's on it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it referred to positively, in reviews and stuff that, oh, it's a playful dance song at the end. But, like, it, it doesn't fit. It's the fucking Cha-Cha Slide for 1988. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a bit harsh. Well, do you know what? Like, not I am no fan of the Cha-Cha Slide, but I'm aware that um, there are people who who like a coordinated dance. So if you could if you could get a coordinated dance to, something to dance to, then, you know, you'll be quids in. So that's the end of the album. In terms of the what comes next, so Dre, uh, Dr. Dre, when he was interviewed in 93, in terms of what he felt about the album, he's, he wasn't a fan of the final product. He said, I threw that thing together in six weeks so we could have something to sell out the back of a trunk. To this day, I can't stand that album. And sadly, as we've just said a few minutes ago on the second half of it, you can tell. Yeah, you can. And I mean, in terms for NWA, after after the release of this album, it very much all goes well. It goes wrong for the for the group itself, but for individual members, they go on from strength to strength. Some of them. Some of them. Ice Cube, as we said, left in 1989 over royalty disputes. Uh, this dispute escalated, and. Uh, Ice Cube was accused of anti-Semitic slurs um, versus NWA's manager in the song 100 Miles and Running. Oh, and no Vaseline. Yes, indeed. 
Unfortunately, I would love to say that that's where Ice Cube's anti-Semitism or accusations of his anti-Semitism cease. Unfortunately, as recent as 2020, he has been accused of retweeting an anti-Semitic mural, of retweeting anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So he wasn't accused of retweeting anti-Semitic murals. He did. And yes, if anyone's wondering, it's that one. If you know, you know. If you don't, I ain't going to talk about it. He did retweet an image of that anti-Semitic mural, and he suggested that he was not anti-anybody, he was just pro-black. And so, as the ongoing dispute between the various NWA members escalated, um, there were homophobic um, slurs made. (sighs) Everyone comes out bad. Yeah, there was a lot of fallout for when people left. What seems clear is that various members of the group, if not all of them, entered into contracts with Ruthless, that they weren't fully aware of the terms of, that there were various disputes over royalties. As I, as we said earlier, Arabian Prince left before the album was released, and Ice Cube left in 1989, not long after it's released, all around royalty disputes. They effectively didn't receive any money from the album. The war of words, certainly between Ice Cube and NWA, continued over the next couple of years and the next couple of albums that that ice cube released and the nwa released the concept of battle raps between releases and between uh artists effectively was born mm-hmm. but within those battles there were various incendiary and unpleasant remarks made by various people so yeah no one really comes out of this with shining colors And it's a real shame considering a lot of the important messages that certainly the early tracks on this album highlighted. And I mean, there was a subsequent reproachment uh, between certainly Ice Cube and Dr. Dre, and certainly in uh, in the aftermath of um, Eazy-E's death. Um, So he contracted um, HIV and died of an AIDS-related illness. And the various surviving members of MWA uh, have collaborated off and on. They have. So even even before Eazy-E's death, Eazy and Ice Cube had reconciled and there were suggestions that the two of them were in discussions, at least with Dr. Dre, about reforming the group. Ice Cube and Dr. Dre had reconciled because, well, Ice Cube appeared in the video for Let Me Ride. So firstly, I think it shows how, because one thing we didn't talk about earlier is how young all of these men were when they achieved that success. So they were all young men. They had all been thrown into this environment that they had not been prepared for and their reactions to it were... They weren't great. Yeah, exactly weren't great. I can't say anything else. But as they'd grown, they'd started to realise that and started to, to, to reconcile. But, yeah, as Kev said, EZE passed away in, in 95 from an AIDS-related illness. And so the reformation of the group clearly never happened. So after that sort of sad postscript to the band, 
I think it's probably worthwhile to to talk about legacy, to talk about the sales and talk about the reviews. All right. So a colossal success, despite the media blackouts, despite or perhaps even because of the controversy. And in fact, the FBI letter that we referred to earlier, the, the, the record company took the decision to publicize that. And that certainly boosted sales of the album. So by August 1988, it had been certified gold in the US, meaning that over half a million copies had been sold. By July of 1989, it had been certified as platinum, selling over 1 million copies. In its initial release on the Billboard Hot 200 chart, it reached number 37. It has been certified platinum in the UK and three times platinum in the USA. To date, worldwide sales have exceeded three and a half million copies and are still growing. This is one of the biggest selling hip hop albums of all time. It was the first ever rap album to garner a five star review in Rolling Stone. Uh, Last year, that same publication ranked it as number 70 in their greatest 500 albums list. It was the first rap album ever to be inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2016. In that same year, NWA themselves were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And in 2017, uh, the Library of Congress added it to the National Recording Registry as a recording of cultural significance. Now, given what we were talking about earlier about the controversy, the parental advisory sticker, the media blackouts, etc., I find that quite ironic, especially considering who was president at the time. A a stamp of the establishment. (laughs) Yeah. Quite so, a huge album. So, in in terms of in terms of reviews, and I mean, obviously, as you've as you've mentioned, that Rolling Stone gave it five stars, and the reviews generally were quite good. I'm gonna pick up some slightly negative ones. Uh, so, Charlie Dick in Q gave it two stars, and I quote: "It's amazing that something this lightweight could cause such a stir." Peter Clark in Hi-Fi News and Record Review, great name for a, a publication, found the lyrics to be unrelenting in their unpleasantness. There's there's something to that. Yeah, there is. So so the the last thing I wanted to bring to your attention was the uh, reviewer Greg Cott stated that NWA's sound was fuller and funkier than Public Enemies. I do not agree. Well, did he unintentionally start the East versus West beef? <laughs> okay, shall we do uh, Nobby McGee's album reviews? We have to. <laughs> um, fortunately, his uh, use of language is not quite as clumsy this week as it was last week. Thank God. However, <sighs> So he says, it's not about salary. It's all about reality, they chant. I mean, they don't chant it to fucking sample knob end as they talk shit about how bad they are. Right. It's not about salary. It's about royalties. It's about brandishing scare words like street, crazy, fuck and reality until suckers black and white cough up the cash. There's a lot more to that review. I refuse to read it. 
fuck off. As much as we have criticised lyrical content of the album, that is perhaps the whitest review I have ever heard of a hip-hop album. Fuck you. Fuck off. Yeah, I, I can't I can't disagree with that. Whilst I have issues with elements of it, the to to accuse it of just throwing in words to to scare the listener, ugh, fuck off, yeah. Like it is it is an evocation of their reality. Yeah. And you have no fucking clue, much like we have no no clue. Exactly. So we go I said I refuse to read anymore. The one thing also he goes on to say that fuck the police is a fantasy. Yes, of course, it's a fucking fantasy. That's the point. Yes, Dr. Dre does not actually have a doctorate. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, let's move on from Nobby McGee. So just to conclude the legacy section, so we've talked about what happened to the band, how they broke up. Ice Cube left in 89. In uh, 1990, he released America's Most Wanted, which... Uh, was a huge album. It was produced by the Bomb Squad. Oh, yes. You did mention that before. So America's Most Wanted sold over a million and a half copies. It was huge. Absolutely made him, really. It did massively make him. And to me, at least, it proved that he was the lyrical force behind behind NWA. Their album in 1991, Elif for Zagin, which is a reversal of something I'm not going to say. It was certified platinum, so it was very su- successful, but it was nowhere near as well received as Straight Outta Compton, mm-hmm. obviously. Dr. Dre left in 1991, having, well, enlisted the help of Suge Knight, the notorious fixer with whom he went on to found Death Row Records. As we've mentioned earlier, in 92, under Death Row, Dre released The Chronic, which was absolutely huge. That sold six million copies worldwide so it's one of the biggest selling hip-hop albums ever and then he he went on to to effectively well not effectively he essentially sculpted the sound of west coast rap for for 10 years 15 years really yeah exactly snoop dogg tupac shakur eminem he also worked with black street his cousin was warren g who uh released Regulate. regulate which is a fucking great song and a Great album. Yeah, he created a subgenre. MC Ren, as we said, he released an album called Shock of the How, which was a platinum selling album, so it was successful. He then went on to join the Nation of Islam, who we've talked about before. <laughs> DJ Yella, his notable achievement having left NWA, he went on to produce and direct a series of pornographic films. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> Okay, so shall we do best song, worst song? So given that um, last time I went first, so this time you should. All right, okay, so I'm going to follow your template. I'm going to do, I'm going to do my least favourite song first. It's something to dance to. It's out of place. It's not from this album. I don't, I don't know what it's from, but it's not from this one. My favourite song... Um, it perhaps won't be a surprise. It's it's the opening track. It's straight out of Compton. It's furious. It's as you said. It's a manifesto. It's fucking phenomenal, brilliant track. So nice and quick for me. What about you? So I'm going to do it the other way around now because my my favourite song is Straight Out Compton. Um, I I really like Express Yourself, but 
straight out of Compton is visceral punch to the face, and it's great. Yes. It's great really, way it. really good. Yeah. My least favorite song, I would say, whilst I completely agree with you about something to dance to, it, it has to be it, I Ain't the One, because as as we discussed, the, the sheer misogyny that I I felt within it. Um, I, I couldn't get past it. Fair enough. I completely understand where you're coming from. I just don't agree. Yeah, music music derives different reactions from different people. Yeah, and that's that's how I've interpreted the lyrics and how I've I've approached it, and I've not enjoyed it. Uh, all right, so it's time to get down to brass tacks and go with the scoring, I guess. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to give? It takes a nation of millions to hold us back. I mean, even the instrumental tracks, even the the filler that I enjoyed, I I liked, I liked the variation of the album. I liked how it it went it went in different places, but kept its conviction of its political ideals and um, its vision and its visceral anger uh, throughout it. I really really like. It takes a nation. So for me, I'm giving it an eight out of ten. I think you've put it really well. It is visceral. It's a gut punch. It's a call to arms. It's a furious coming out party. Both of these albums get a knobhead tax, as we now called it. This wasn't the first Public Enemy album I heard. This is certainly my favorite Public Enemy album. Great. Eight out of ten, I agree. Eight out of ten, same. Yeah. Okay, so then we move on to... Uh, straight out of Compton. So, Tim, where do you come down on it? All right, so I, I think I know where this is going, and I think I'm okay with it, but I need to speak up for this album. I agree with the criticisms that you have levied at it, because I have the same criticisms. There's also the issues with Dre and Ice Cube on the knobhead basis there. But I think this did as much, if not more, for disaffected black youth i think the influence on music in terms of what we've just said cannot be understated so in a similar way i've said before the influence that this album's had is definitely coming into to play in my judgment so despite its clear flaws the second half of it tails off massively massively but the first half is so i've got to give it an eight as well I will, without question, challenge your scoring there. Um, obviously, I will come to and explain my own scoring. In the when we talked about Transformer, you I, and I said that you were harsh on the second half of the album. Yep. And you you scored it low for it tailing off. Uh-huh. This this tails off far more. Yeah, it does, and it, it's everything the album represents. Okay. That's, that's it. And I know you don't necessarily factor that in as much to the way you score things as I do. I have to. For this album, above anything else we will ever do, I have to factor that in. It's everything the album represents in terms of what it allowed to follow it. It didn't pave the way. It broke the fucking doors down and said, come on, doors open, boys. And that is worthy of recognition okay so yes musically it doesn't deserve an eight out of ten culturally it absolutely does deserve an eight out of ten and that's why i'm giving it that score okay that's your opinion for me the first four or five songs are phenomenal 
I have my reservations about Gangster Gangster, but as an evocation of a place, of a time, of a culture, you know, it's really good. So the first five, grand, but we then we then decline significantly. Mm-hmm. And Express Yourself is is good. It's a, it's a good song, but I've I've also got to factor in. Whilst I understand what you're saying about legacy and everything like that, I've also got to factor in the the legacy it has in terms of the acceptance of misogynism within the hip hop genre. I I really struggled with with this album listening to it through, given its cultural import, and I I don't normally score for that, but I understand it. I am. Um, gonna give give it some credence six six out of ten it drops off greatly and whilst there's some it starts off so well like i really really struggle to listen through it okay so well i'm not gonna piss and whinge about it like like you did for the last two clashes for starters i'm a bigger man than you are clearly what do you mean piss and whinge about it like when i when i scored you're still going you're still going you're still fucking going unbelievable no, I'm not. I'm not going to piss and whinge about it because I understand where it, this. This is a definite reflection of my histories with these two albums. It was a. Per, I can't decide between them, just as you couldn't decide between them last week. I think there are very troubling themes within both albums. Actually, I think I will not criticize you for your misgivings about Straight Outta Compton. I think they are entirely justified, but. I also think they are spoken with the benefit of the privilege that we have both spoken about. Yeah, and um, I have to accept that, one, I'm speaking from, as you say, the benefit of the of the white privilege that I exist in, and I'm also speaking far removed from the time and place that that uh, record was, was recorded in. So I I accept that and understand that I I can only I can only reflect what my true reaction to to that album was. No, and, that's and fair, that, and that's, that's and that's what I have done. Fine. So anyway, we've given Nation of Millions sixteen, and uh, that is victorious over Straight Outta Compton, which has fourteen. So, uh, and much as you said last time, I'd be happy to see either of them win. I scored them both the same. Yeah, so I'm not disappointed to see Public Enemy win this week, but that is this week's winner. Public Enemy, with it takes a nation of billions to hold us back, has won this album clash. So we then move on to what is next week's clash. So I am going to go completely different from anything we've done before. Ooh, it can be easily said that our selections have been largely male. Yep, and generally white. Obviously, our last clash was not, but generally we have been. Mm -hmm. And what I would also say is that the most recent clash that we've had was an album that was recorded in, what, 98? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to go completely out of kilter with everything we've done before. I'm going to choose two women. I'm going to choose two two women of colour and two albums that are relatively recent. Okay. So our next clash will be 2018's Dirty Computer by Janelle Monet versus Cause I Love You by Lizzo from 2019. So yeah, we are going, we're going modern, 
we're going into the 21st century this time. Dirty Computer. I fucking love Dirty Computer. I have not heard Lizzo. Give Lizzo a chance. All right. All I'm saying is give Lizzo a chance. (laughs) (laughs) Peace and love. (laughs) Oh, good. Right. As ever, it's your time to shine. Okay. If you like arguing with people that you're never going to meet in person, you may like to choose Twitter. And if you if you choose that medium, you can go to our Twitter page, which is at Clash Album. If you enjoy uh, short stories and um, good social media content, then you can go to our Insta, um, which is not run by either of us, which is why it's good. Um, and that is Clash Album. Or you can send us an email. Please send us some some clashes you'd like to see. Please some send comment. us an email. The email account's very lonely. <laughs> oh, wait, that, that's not... Um, our... <laughs> Why is that? The thing oh, to the Godfather's that. not going to happen. <laughs> I've no idea. I can't remember what the tune to um, our tune was, the Simon Bates um, classic. Do 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 do. You can see you can see why <laughs> why I got like um, the Godfather in my head. So yeah, please send us an email. Like and of course, as Tim always says, if you like what we're doing, please like, subscribe, send us some comments, give us the stars. We're desperate for stars. Like we are currently, we are the McDonald's employee with no stars. <laughs> give us a star. <laughs> oh very good yeah get involved subscribe all that stuff i hope you're enjoying it we are so that's all that matters and we will see you next time so just a reminder kev please tell people what their homework is so your homework is to listen to uh janelle monet's 2018 album dirty computer and uh, Lizzo's 2019 Cause I Love You. Great stuff. Uh, we will see you next week. Well, I, again, we won't see you. You know what I mean? I'm, stop it. <laughs> uh, see you virtually. We will. We will. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Uh, I've been Tim. I've been Kev. And we'll see you next time. Ta-da. Ta-da.